Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, we're so glad that you're joining us here this morning. I want to say hello to everyone in Port Perry and in Bowmanville and listening online, wherever you might be here in the world. Welcome. A few months ago, I was driving north above Toronto towards the Muskokas on my way to a retreat. I went through a beautiful small rural town and a small Anglican church building caught my eye. It was 100 to 120 years old, had a beautiful little bell tower. And right below that bell tower was a small stained glass window. And filling that stained glass window was the symbol of the Holy Spirit descending down, bringing life and character and his gifts and his power. But as my eye trailed down from that stained glass window, my heart sunk as in front of another church was another for sale sign. I went and I went online to see how much I could buy a church for. 175 grand. Everywhere we go, I've mentioned this before, churches are closing across our country. They are cheese factories, homes, dance clubs, music halls, gyms, mosques, yoga studios, corporate headquarters, and of course, now coveted lofts. These places dedicated to the glory of God. These places where faith was passed down, where children were baptized and dedicated. These places where the gospel was preached, where scripture was read, where Jesus was hopefully encountered. Thousands and thousands of churches, of course, have already closed. Some we know and many we don't. Many more torn down. And here are the raw, brute facts today. 2,500 churches in Canada will close in the next 10 years at a minimum. Evangelical mainline declining attendance and increasing age is everywhere. The curve is identical. It's just delayed in churches like ours. Here's an example. In 1950, 95% of people in Quebec went to church. Now 5% do. Only one in three Canadian young adults who attend church weekly as a child will do so today. Out of the young adults who no longer call themselves, uh, those who went to church, half will not even call themselves Christian anymore. Now the reason why this collapse is taking place is multifold. Number one, there is scandal. And we just need to admit it. It is in our faces here, there, and everywhere. Within Protestant and Catholic churches, people are doing things under the guise of religion. They're doing horrific, evil things. And when we do evil things and then proclaim to be good, people call this hypocrisy and they leave. Now, not only is it perceived hypocrisy, it is real hypocrisy, but it is not just that. It is more. One of the other great things that is taking place across actually the whole West is this. One of the main reasons why we see the collapse of Christianity is cultural Christianity is finally dying. You say, well, what is cultural Christianity? Well, I'm a Christian because I go to a nation that I think is Christian. I'm a Christian because my mom and dad or my grandma was a Christian. I'm a Christian because I'm a nice moral person. Isn't that what Christians are? I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Hindu. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Wiccan. I'm not an atheist. So I suppose I will call myself a Christian. Maybe you come from a, Can a non-Canadian nation and it is a Christian nation by mentality or has a national church. But the problem with all of that is this, inherited faith is never enough. Actually, none of those things are Christian. So now as this middle is disappearing, as this mush is literally dissipating, as there's less and less advantage to being a Christian or going to church, as the Christian faith has moved more and more to the margins, what do we do? That is, we who genuinely still do follow Jesus, or you who are seekers or skeptics who want to understand it. Like I said last year at our conference, and not only that, even in our whole community, 
Canada is a post-Christian, de-Christian experience. At the same time, we are culturally postmodern and deeply modern, which is a contradiction. We are deeply sexualized, we are multicultural, we are pluralistic, we are globalized, and yet we live in a highly personal world because of this. We are living between two huge gorillas fighting for the soul of humanity. On one hand, we have a very militant, secular, sexual revolution touching all parts of society. On the other hand, we now have the rise of dangerous religious fundamentalism that maims and kills in the name of God. And the kicker is that both groups think we are compromised and we as Christians are with the other group. The sexual revolution calls us hateful, backwards, medieval, homophobic. The other group calls us, that is the religious fundamentalists, call us compromised, untruthful, secular. And in the middle we stand with Jesus and scripture, calling for grace and truth and pointing to life and rejecting legalism and saying no to hate and saying no to violence and at the same time saying you cannot live any way you want. God has spoken. As biblical, orthodox, historic Christians, we are caught in the middle of two massive global relig- uh, revolutions, both claiming they have the answers and we are standing between them saying you're all wrong. With a growing full collapse of what historically is called Christendom in the West, as we are now feeling more and more like we are living in exile in our own neighborhoods, homes, and country, what do we do? Well, th- what we probably think we should do is look to each other for answers. We shouldn't. Many of us have never thought of this, so we say, let's not look backward, let's look forward, because the future is where things are, but no, we shouldn't do that either. What we need to do is something countercultural. We need to look back. Back to ancient times, back to the faith of our fathers so long ago. See, we have been here before as the people of God. And that is why we are landing now in the book of Daniel. Daniel's time is a very helpful time for us. Daniel's time is a time of decline. Daniel's time is a time where God's people had God's word, understood God's word, and rejected God's word. Daniel's time is a time of coming exile, a time where faith would be moved to the margins, where larger super global powers would have the last say, it would seem, and it is a time where God felt distant and yet at the same time intervened and did such profound things we're still talking about them in 2018. But to start in the story of Daniel, you never start with him. You have to start before him. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah came and preached God's word to God's people, begged them, warned them, cried, and said, please, you're married to God, you have a covenant with God, he's so loving, he's so good, he's so kind, please stop having affairs on him, turn from your sin. If you do not turn from your sin, God will walk away and we will be judged by him, and the people did not listen. It says this in Jeremiah 25, 8, therefore, the Lord of angel armies, the God, God Almighty said this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and go and against this whole surrounding nations and the whole country will become desolate, a wasteland, and the nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. God's people were about to be exiled from their land. The temple that Solomon had built where the Shekinah glory of God came and resided would be destroyed. Its contents and people exiled not for a decade but for a generation. And why did this take place? Because the people of God who knew God, who had his word, would not love him back or obey his word. But don't misunderstand the story of Daniel yet. Because the wholesale destruction of Israel and Judah takes place after this begins, under Jehoiakim's brother, Daniel, the story of Daniel, lies between disaster and outright destruction. 
And it begins like this in Daniel 1.1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. Now Babylon is the superpower of the ancient world, known for military might and art, but also known for its cruelty, its conquest, and also it's the birthplace and epicenter of the worship of a demon god called Marduk. And its starting point as a nation goes all the way back to the beginning of humanity and the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 11, the human family is still together and speaks one language, and they decide to build something that all of us, seeker, skeptic, or Christian probably has heard of, the Tower of Babel. It reads like this in Genesis 11.4. Then they said, that's the human family, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole face of the earth. This is the great human project, unity of disbelief and unbelief expressed through city and tower. And this is where something so insidious is born that still captures the hearts and minds of almost everyone today, religion. By my own actions, I can reach the heavens. By our own actions, we can access the gods. By what I do, we can enter into heaven. If God has blocked us from Eden, we will force ourselves back to God anyway. The roots of Babel morph later into this global superpower. And all of this is now at play in the story of Daniel. You, you read the story and you can feel the hopelessness and despair and military might and political dominance and the religious darkness. But do not get stuck in this looming, overwhelming, large, seemingly unredeemable storm. God is not unaware. He's not upstairs pacing, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? He's totally in control. And it says in verse 2, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Uh, if you're taking notes for Connect Group this week, would you circle the phrase, the Lord? Uh, the name here in Hebrew is not Yahweh, which is God's marriage name or covenantal name or his loving name. The, the word in Hebrew is Adonai, which means God is Lord, God is master, God is superior. Even in the name we see here, God is in control. It seems like evil is going to have the last day, but God will not have the last say. But God, even in his name, is reflecting something. God always has the last say, and God is always in control. Anyone want to say amen to that? Always. And yet the painful, difficult journey is still going to happen anyway. So the king is not just taken, but something deeper happens here. Some of the articles from the temple of God are taken, and these Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Now, don't miss the pain of this. These items represented sacrifice and prayer and forgiveness and second chances and grace and intercession and in connection, and now they are brought to a foreign land and placed in the largest of 50-plus temples in Babylonia, and they are brought to a tower that looked by the way, just like Babel, and their God's items, Adonai's items, are placed underneath the demonic idol Marduk. And what Nebuchadnezzar is declaring is, my God is stronger than your God. Can you imagine the pain and the powerlessness and the thoughts of the Jewish people? Maybe our God isn't all-powerful. Maybe he isn't in control. Maybe Marduk is the true living God. See, never forget in the ancient Near East, the king represented the God. Whoever won the war truly worshiped the stronger deity. So God's people are in exile, the things of God are being removed, and then a darker thing takes place. It says in verse 3, then the king ordered the chief of his official court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. 
He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after they were trained, they'd entered the king's service. Scholars tell us that these boys would be somewhere between 13 and 20. So they are junior highs, senior highs, and maybe young adults. Maybe. Now, what do they go after? Well, nothing has ever changed in any culture. They, look, they go after the really good-looking people. Okay. Intellectually strong, well-educated, and they're from the right type of homes. But again, as modern hearers, whether you're seeker, skeptic, or long-term believer, we all together as modern hearers miss what is happening. This is political at its core. This is assimilation. This is about ongoing propaganda. The goal is clear. It is to eradicate Jewish belief, Jewish faith, and Jewish custom from the best of the best out of the Jewish community. It is to get the best and the brightest and the best-looking Jewish young men and assimilate them into Babylonian society. This is intentional, forced seduction. This is conversation conversation that turns to conversion, and it would be complete in a Babylonian worldview if they stayed and joined the court, or even better, if they went home to their defeated homeland and said, actually, the Jewish thing isn't a good deal. We all need to think like Babylonians because they've got it better. They would be religiously, economically, spiritually, politically, sexually, linguistically, and relationally transformed and become evangelists for the Babylon way of life, and this was a three-year, 24-a-day process, and they could not escape it. So the question that we already start grappling with is, would these young teenagers continue to be gods? Would they continue to be wholly different? Or would they actually give in? Who would own them body and soul in the end, Nebuchadnezzar or God? They've been captured, brought in, trained, taught, and given the best that Babylon has to offer. But the indoctrination would not be complete, and this is true in every century, until the system took your identity. Oh, and where in ancient Near East was the identity rooted in your name? Among those who were chosen from Judah was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official now gave them new names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Every time I say that, because I grew up in a Baptist church, I think about felt boards. Anyway, some of you will get that. Now, what we've never understood, most of us who've grown up in church, is this. What did their names mean? Daniel meant this, Israel's God is my judge. Hananiah meant Israel's God has been gracious to me. Michelle's name meant who can compare to my God? No one can. And Azariah is Israel's God is my help. Now listen to what the new names mean. Belteshazzar means may Marduk or a demon god protect my life or lady goddess. Most people believe Daniel's name is effeminized to humiliate him. Shadrach means I'm fearful of Marduk. Meshach means I'm despised and humiliated, and Abednego means I'm a slave of Nebu. The new Babylonian names are given directly to connect pagan idols and gods to these young men. Their new names eradicate Jewish faith, culture, identity, and also remove God from them specifically. And not only that, they are reminded every time that their name is spoken that they are defeated, that they are a slave, and they are owned now by another God. Indoctrination at the core of personality. But was life that bad? I mean, they got better off than most. They weren't starved to death or killed off in the siege. They were good looking. They had that going for them. They were smart. They had access to real power. They could have all the side benefits of power. And if they moved away from the Jewish faith of their parents, who would know? I mean, God hadn't shown up to help them, and the king's word is law, and, and their parents probably were dead or somewhere else. So, you know, compromise might be good and logical and wise. I mean, it's the smart thing to do, right? And then three little words appear from a teenager. 
that show many of us, even as adults, really aren't walking well yet. But Daniel resolved. This teenager resolved that he was not going to defile himself with the royal food or the wine, and he went to the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So here's the question. Why did Daniel choose not to eat at the king's table? Like, this is the keg, but way better. What's going on? Well, many point out that the food is dedicated to many idols, and as an Orthodox Jew, he would not touch that. Yes. Others point out that since he had decided to remain a good Orthodox religious observant Jew, he would not eat certain foods because the book of Leviticus said certain foods were not of God and certain food was of God, so he would not eat it. Fine. But why would he not drink the wine? I mean, it was not unclean according to Jewish law. There wasn't Baptist yet, so what was going on? Well, what is taking place is something deeper. The wine was not forbidden but the wine, which was the best, represented the allure and seduction of the whole thing. And Daniel makes a decision as a courageous young man where he says, I will not do any of this. Now we're going to stop right there, eight verses. We're done. I'm not done preaching. We're done that part. And already in eight verses, what we begin to see is what each one of us personally must cling to and not just intellectually understand, but live out of if we are going to thrive in exile. Next week, we're going to talk about how we love the city that we disagree with. But this week is the question, what do I do personally when really I'm now living in exile? Well, here's the first thing we already see in eight verses. Number one, the sovereignty of God is stronger than any king, any massive change, or any decline. The way that we as Christians live our life in freedom, the way we are not washed away by fear or teach our children fear, the way we choose not to compromise, how we thrive in exile, living well even though we disagree is that we know and we confess and we have an understanding that this is God's world, no one else's world. God is creator. And when everything else is changing around us or falling apart, do not fear. God is in charge. In the end, he will make all things right. Sovereignty is the underpinning to faithfulness. See, it was the sin of God's own people that brought this judgment on them. But Daniel very honestly could have said to God, it's not fair, this isn't right, my sister could have been murdered, my parents, where are they? I mean, listen, I have right to be bitter. You walked away, God, on us. God did this, so I'm out. No, Daniel has a profound sense of God's hand. Let me say this again. Do you honestly think that God is getting up off his throne in heaven And pacing up and down going, oh, Canada, 2,500 churches. Gabriel, do you have any thoughts? I don't know what to do. God is fundamentally in control. And God knows exactly what's going to happen. And God will still accomplish his purposes. And don't forget, God placed Daniel and Babylon, and God has placed you in this country. So the sovereignty of God, if you do not believe in the sovereignty of God, you will compromise. But if you do believe in it, you can stand. Here's the second thing. We begin to see the role of God's word is so key to Daniel's worldview. God's written word was central for Daniel, and this is how he actually chose to thrive in exile. Nine chapters later, we see the centrality of God's written word when it says in Daniel 9 2, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of God given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last for 70 years. The reason why he chose not to eat at the king's table 
was based on God's law. He had read Leviticus. He knew the words of Moses. He knew God's personal revealed purposes. For Daniel and for us, the scripture is not the only, but it is the ultimate authority for faith, what we believe, life and practice, how we think and how we act. Now, we are told in Canadian culture all the time there's no absolute truth. We hear this all the time in social media. You live your own truth, and you define what that is. We're told that everything is flexible, and everything's up to date. Life, gender, sexuality, justice, politics, money, business, relationships, work, religion are just opinion, personal choice, and are not grounded in anything absolute. No. God is creator. God is Lord. God is love. God is holy. God is good, and God has spoken. How do we thrive in exile? We choose, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, to be formed by and live under good, God's good and kind words. And we, in this moment in Canada, must make the decision now, before a full collapse, if it comes, what we will do in the time of decision. King Dave put it this way when he was writing the Psalms. Psalm 119, 112, my heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Would you lose your job for the sake of the word of God? Verse 128, I consider your precepts right and I hate every wrong path. Generation later, Paul would write these words in 1 Timothy 4, 16, watch your life and your doctrine closely. You persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, there are always three ways where God's people are tempted to compromise and become Babylonian. There are three ways to eat at the Babylonian table. There are three ways to always let your name change even when you don't know it is being changed. We talked about it in our Jude series that was Jesus' half-brother. We talked about it in 1 Corinthians. Let me do it again today. The first way we actually compromise is false ideas about who God is and what he's done. The second one is false ideas of how you meet God and how you get salvation. And the third one is false ideas of how you get to live after you've met the true living God. So here's the first question. What are the non-negotiable truths about God and what he's done and what he's promised that we cannot change? Babylon teaches us, Canada teaches us, there are many paths, many ways. All people go to God through many doors, but God has revealed something different. Listen again to the best summary of the Christian faith confessed by all churches of all stripes globally around the world. It's called the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, uh, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, buried descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. This is actually the truth of our faith. We believe in the existence of God, and not many gods, there's only one God, and his name is Father, meaning he is relational, involved, loving, holy. He's almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, and he is sovereign, and he is the creator of heaven and earth. Reality and creation is not a mistake from some big bang. It is the beautiful artistry and brilliant mathematician expre expression of a creator. We believe in Jesus Christ. The Jesus of history is the same as Jesus of faith. He's God's only son, meaning he is God. You cannot have the DNA of God and not be God, for only one being has that. 
There has only been one incarnation of God in all of human history. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's from Nazareth. And he's the only way back to God because he claimed he was the only way back to God. He is Lord, that is, he's the true and living king. We believe he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. God has come for us, and he is without sin. He is human like us, and yet he is fully God. He does not appear human. He really took on flesh so we'd know who God is. Oh, we believe in the virgin, virgin birth, which allows Jesus to be without sin and points to the ongoing truth of miracles. We believe Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. For you who are skeptical today, lean in. Our faith is rooted in actual, accessible, historical facts. We do not believe in myth or fairy tales. It happened in history. Jesus was crucified, he died, and he rose again. Jesus physically came back from the dead. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has overcome all sin, all death, and the demonic, and Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Every human, including Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, will face Jesus himself and give an account for their life. We believe in the Holy Spirit. He is God, he is part of the Trinity, he is not a force. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. You're like, oh, I don't. Oh, yes, you do. Catholic means universal, spending time, race, gender, and culture. And holy means we are a forgiven people. Forgiveness of sins. We are clean by Jesus' work, which he has done on our behalf. We believe in the resurrection of the body. All those who trust in Jesus Christ will be physically raised from the dead. We believe in life everlasting. Heaven and hell are real. And depending on what you want to do with God in this life, he will honor in the, le- in the next life. That is the baseline of our faith. That is the foundation of our faith. That is the core of our faith. And if you do not believe these things, you actually are not a Christian. But if you do believe these things, you cannot compromise on these things while living in Babylon because this is the revealed truth of God. As one person said, there is a temptation now to think of Christianity not as a transcendent truth or as reality, but as an option. See, that's the difference between Babylonian thinking and God's revelation to us. The second way Babylon seducts and seduces all of us is it tells us that religion is so good Just be mindful, go to yoga, pray five times a day, go to church, say your rosary, fill in any form, every blank, pray to your ancestors, burn incense. See, you can reach the spiritual peak, you can access the gods, the spiritual world will be okay with you if you're just Canadian enough, good enough, kind enough. Good works make you okay. Being spiritual is enough to build towers to God. No, that is the language of Babel and that is the language of Babylon. It is not the language of Jesus. It is not the language of grace. Do you know how scary it is, how devastating it is, how how distraught it is when you really think it would really be up to you? But the beautiful truth of Christianity is this, that God came for us when we could not get to him. And when you acknowledge we are never our own saviors, but we need a savior, grace floods in, love floods in, and you find hope, eternal life, and life forever. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace you get saved through faith. It is never from yourself. It is always a gift of God. It is never by work, so no one gets to what? Boast. No one gets to boast. The third way Babylon comes to us and tries changing our name, the very thing that Daniel faced as a teenager and what is actually fighting for the soul literally of C4 at this moment, is believing that you can know God, say the apostles' greed, be saved by faith, and still live a double life and think God will be okay with it to eat at the king's table, a false king's table, and eat at the true king's table all at once. Babylon's living is compromised living. It's mixing truth and error. Will we be like Daniel and choose risk or compromise? Last year when we, as a community, were gathering, we went through the book of 1 Corinthians, a group of Christians living in a, st- in a city called Corinth, multicultural, pluralistic, very much like Toronto. And for those who had said yes to Jesus, 
he gave a call that is exactly the same call that Daniel was working out in Babylon. Do you remember what Paul wrote to those who had already said yes to Jesus? Not to those who are seekers or skeptics or unbelievers, to we who have said yes. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the hype. The sexual immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, swindlers, slanderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, and that is what some of you were. But now you've been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. No, don't get up and leave yet, please. Let me speak this all out. Notice each phrase that Paul uses here. Each sin is not just an action. It is identity-based. It's identity-giving, and it is name-changing, ongoing. It's the mark of Corinth and the mark of Babylon. Sexual immorality, I've taught this before. When you would talk to an Orthodox Jew today or 2,000 years ago, and you'd say, what does that mean? Literally in the dictionary, they'd say, oh, it's the word pornea. It's where we get our modern word pornography from. And it is a summary statement of Leviticus 18, all the forbidden sexual acts in the Old Testament. When a Jewish person says sexual morality, it means incest, incest, premarital sex, adultery, one-night stands, same-sex activity, prostitution, molestation, bestiality, and orgies. All of these things are forbidden. And for the biblical writers, the sexual starting point is Adam and Eve pre-fall. We move from sexual sin very quickly to religious sin, and he says, oh, by the way, those who commit idolatry uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, when a good, sincere Hindu, as an example, worships Ganesh, they are committing a sin. It's not about sincerity, it's about who you worship. And by the way, that, that's formal religious idolatry, but idolatry is everywhere. Sex, money, power, lifestyle, your rights can actually become an idol. As the New City Catechism wrote, idolatry is trusted, trusting in created things rather than the creator for hope, happiness, significance, and security. Whoa. What do you put your hope in? What do you put your hope for happiness in? Where is your significance and security found? If it is not found in the true living God, idolatry. And Paul says, oh, sexual sin, yep. Religious sin, yep. Oh, and money's on the table too. Greed. When money and getting money is the heart of your life, then God is money and money is God, and you will not love the true living God. Money is an evil, but greed is. Those who are filled with greed, and you know this, they will end up stealing, lying, coveting, fudging the numbers, doing illegal things. They will destroy people's lives and reputations to get ahead. And what did Jesus say? What is it good that you gain the whole world and you forfeit your own soul? Slander. Oh, slander. Defaming someone's character. Telling lies about people. Speaking ill of people. Selling someone's reputation. The legal word is libel. I don't know if you've been depressed lately about how the world is going? If it just like every time you turn on social media or the news, you just want to cry? That's what I feel like. For the last two years when I look online and I even try to listen to well-intentioned people, all I see everywhere is slander. Presume guilty before the facts. All or nothing on every issue. Everything's war. Right, left, up, down. Scorch earth policy. Slander is everywhere. Trust no one. Believe no one. Well, let me just declare something today. We as followers of Jesus may never be marked by shoot first and ask questions later. We are called to love our enemies and love our neighbors and never slander anybody. 
And Paul comes along and he says, you will not have eternal life if you are a slanderer. And then he says, swindlers and thieves, those who cheat persons or businesses out of money or assets by force or lies. Now all of us, no matter where you're hearing me, are sitting here and going, hold on, that's me. I've done some of that stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, actually, we've all done this stuff. This is not saying if we struggle, desire, have done these acts, that's it, you're out forever. No, all of us as Christians struggle and wander, but we have now met the mercy of God through Jesus. And like Daniel now, we now, though we struggle and though we're in an environment we may not absolutely love, we now, have make, we now are called to make a decision not to build our identity in this list or celebrate or relish or affirm what God has saved us from. You thrive in exile as a Christian by living a kind, loving, holy, countercultural life. David, sorry, Daniel chose to obey God's law at great risk by diverging with the culture and even understanding that the king's word was law and he still said no. What did Daniel do that was so revolutionary? Here's what he did. He said, sin is sin and I will not call it anything else and I choose to say no because the king's table is not good enough for me. I have a better table with a better king. How do we thrive in exile? We actually believe in the sovereignty of God. We actually believe that God's word has the right to tell us what to do. We truly work out who God is and who he's not. We really work out how we're saved and how we get to walk and we choose to actually say no to things that we love but God has said no to for the sake of a greater cause. But deeper than that, wider than that, higher than that is this. And this, what I'm about to say, will set the tone for the rest of the series. We thrive in exile as the people of God by letting God have the final say over your name. Who names you? You're like, my parents said, no, 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 no. Who names you for real? Who gets to actually say who you are? Family say things over us all the time. Work, government, friends, enemies, social media, magazines, the enemy, sin. If you've got history of abuse and pain, that can form your identity. On it, no. Here's what we need to know. God knows you. God has saved you. And God is the one who gets to name you, no one else. Babylon looks for beautiful people. Babylon looks for smart people. Babylon looks for the families with the right names. God looks for anyone who wants life. And when we say yes to him, he comes in and gives us names out of love, out of holiness. God is not someone upstairs who's always trying to destroy our party. He is trying to give us life so he spares us from our own deaths. I love what Jesus said. In John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Sheep are dumb. I don't know if you know that. Sheep are cuddly and they bite. So they're a great description of us. Loving, angry, and dumb. Perfect. And what's amazing if you talk to shepherds today or historically, what they will tell you is that multiple shepherds could be in the same environment with thousands of sheep. And you couldn't tell apart one from the other, but right when the shepherd walks into the flock and calls every sheep that is owned by him knows that voice. Why? Because he had named them already. 
They knew his voice already. And here is what we need to end with today and then begin this whole series about. Jesus has the final say over you. Not Babylon, not Satan, not abuse, not pain, not sin. Jesus does. We are a sheep and the Bible is clear about the content now of our name. Because of Jesus and who he is, you are actually forgiven. That is true. You are not owned by any king or any government or your own family. You're not owned by Satan. You're owned by God. You are without blemish. You go, yeah, yeah, really? No, without blemish. You are reconciled to God. You are free from accusation. You're actually seated with Jesus above all of Babylon and all it represents. And the Bible declares, as I've preached before, you are a saint because of the work of Christ. You have grace and peace with God. You are chosen, called, foreknown, adopted, and you're a child of God. Not in the generic sense, we're all children of God. No, you are personally a child of God. God, Adonai, Yahweh, knows your name personally. Not only that, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have a guarantee of physical resurrection. You're not only made in the image of God, but you've been baptized into Jesus' death and baptized into Jesus' resurrection. The actual temple of the Holy Spirit is you. You've been bought with a high price. You have guaranteed eternal life. You are God's personal chosen possession. You are justified legally before him. You've been crucified with Christ. You are not a slave to sin. You are a slave to Jesus. And Jesus is the best master you could have because Jesus will never mistreat you and he will always love you. You have acceptance and security because of God's love that was given to you first. This is the content of your name. This is who you truly are. And if you want to thrive in Babylon, if you want to survive the social media onslaught of negativity, if you want to be faithful in Canada in 2018 and beyond, no matter what happens in our country, then you begin to make a decision now. God has the final say about me. God has the final say about his word. God has the final say over this world. And I am going to live with him because he's good, he's kind, he's loving, he's holy, and he's going to work it all out in the end, no matter what Nebuchadnezzar is on the throne. So, could we do this across our community? Could we take a moment to pray? Because this is the beginning of the conversation, not the end. And let's pray a few things. Number one, Lord, thank you that you're sovereign. Thank you that you're not wringing your hands upstairs going, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? But there's a lot of people in our church that live in fear all the time. They're afraid for their kids and their grandkids and what's going to happen with our nation. God, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit to these people and teach them about your sovereignty so they can not only breathe, but they can actually have peace. Second of all, Lord, forgive us as a church where we have compromised where we have rejected truths that are non-negotiable. And by the way, some of you right now are literally going to have to repent because you're like, I've actually believed other things. You need to say, sorry, God. Some of you have believed your whole life that you're saved by what you do or God's going to like you because how kind you are. You need to say, Lord, forgive me. I just need Jesus' work in my life. Have mercy. And lots and lots of us, like the old nation of Israel, have been living double lives. And at this moment, again, this is a gracious invitation to repent and say, Lord, forgive me that I haven't been like Daniel and I have not been resolved. Forgive me for living two worlds and just tell them the thing you've been doing and ask forgiveness. But deeper than that, 
This is what we now need to pray. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit upon this church right now in this moment. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you begin to show any person, no matter their age, 10, 15, 80, 25, 90, 40, any place where their name has been replaced by something false, would that break now in Jesus' name? May the truth of what God has done in our lives actually have effect. And here's our last prayer. We think back to that small Anglican church that's for sale right now, just north of us. And we think about that stained glass window and the image of the Holy Spirit. And here's what we pray in boldness. Thank you, God, that the Holy Spirit is not a stained glass window image, that he is alive. And so we as a group of people with no power in our hands come to you now through Jesus to the Father. And we say, Father and Son, pour out the Holy Spirit in our nation again. Pour out your Holy Spirit in C4. Pour out your Spirit in the churches in this region. And come, Holy Spirit, bring life in a nation that does not know you. Come and do a miracle, an amazing thing. And thank you that we are not left alone. We have a power that is beyond us. Make us people like Daniel, that we are resolved to be kind, generous, loving, and yet unflinching in the holy faith passed down for 2,000 years. Glory be to God the Father who is in control. Glory be to Jesus the Son who's died, rose again, and forever is King and Lord. And glory be to the Holy Spirit who makes us like Jesus, gives us the power of Jesus, and reassures us that the resurrection is true. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.